Big Law Business is sponsored by Bloomberg Law. Bloomberg Law is an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial of Bloomberg Law, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to the Big Law Business Podcast. I'm Josh Block. I produce videos and podcasts for Big Law Business. I'm joined by Casey Sullivan. Hello, Casey. Hi, Josh. I write and edit articles for the website. Twice a month, Casey and I record this podcast about the most notable recent business of law stories, the stories that impact the largest U.S. law firms. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, February 24th. And first, we have a bit of follow-up on the Dewey and LaBeouf fraud trial. To start with, we have a correction. In our January 19th episode, titled, Does Big Law Have an Old Girl Network? We referred to the agreement that Dewey's former chair, Steve Davis, accepted as a plea deal. It was not a plea deal. It was, in fact, a deferred prosecution agreement. We apologize for the error. To explain the difference, we've brought on an expert, our colleague, Carl Sussman. Carl is a commercial product director at Bloomberg Law, who formerly practiced law in the area of white-collar criminal defense. Carl, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for our first guest ever on the Big Law Business Podcast, we have one question, maybe a follow-up to, what is the difference between a deferred prosecution agreement and a plea deal? In a plea deal, one is actually pleading guilty to a crime. Often it might be a lesser crime than one they were originally charged with, and often it's an exchange for some kind of understanding about what the sentencing might be. But it's the legal and practical equivalent of being convicted of the crime at trial. So you are a convicted criminal with all of the consequences that that brings. Whereas in a deferred prosecution agreement, you're actually entering into an agreement with the prosecutor, effectively, that they are not going to prosecute you uh, for the crime. And often you, you you do that by, you know, agreeing to fulfill certain conditions. There's no admission of guilt. That's typically the case, correct. Yet you're taking some responsibility. Correct. And you are often, as I said, bearing consequences. It might be a fine, you know, it might be, you know, an agreement to refrain from doing certain activities or an agreement to do, you know, certain activities like community service, uh, those types types of things. So there certainly are consequences to a, uh, you know, entering into a deferred prosecution agreement, but you are not uh, pleading guilty to a crime and you, you do not become a convicted criminal uh, following that kind of agreement. So it is a little bit different when you're talking about a lawyer. Well, there can also be professional consequences for somebody like an attorney or another professional who, you know, if they become convicted of a crime could impair their ability to you know, practice their profession going forward, or if you're, you know, a corporate entity, entity could, you know, impair your ability to do certain activities going forward if you are a convicted criminal. So there can be some advantages, even if you're, you know, you're still paying a fine or still agreeing to do certain things, there can be advantages to not having been convicted of a crime. That was Carl Sussman of Bloomberg Law and the perfect segue, because we now have our second deferred prosecution agreement in the case among the four defendants, Zachary Warren, also known as the junior Dewey defendant. His case was separated, accepted a deferred prosecution agreement last week. Casey, remind us who Zachary Warren is. So he was a very low level uh, ranking employee at the firm. He actually hadn't graduated law school. He's 31 years old right now, to give you a sense. He had been offered a, a job at Williams and Connolly in Washington, 
before this whole case uh, emerged. They had to rescind the offer. He just got the offer re-extended to him, so he's going to be joining the firm if he hasn't already. After leaving Dewey, uh, Warren actually went on to graduate from the law school, Georgetown University. He ended up practicing at a, a small firm in Pennsylvania. He was not a lawyer when he was at Dewey. What was his job and what, what was his role? What did he do? It was really in the, in the records keeping division, and it was a pretty minimal role. And the reason why that the prosecutors had tied him into this was they pointed to his involvement in attending a steak dinner at Del Fresco in Midtown Manhattan. That happened in 2008 when uh, when Joel Sanders and Frank Canellis, the firm's former finance director, had talked about ways that it could uh, make up for a pretty significant shortfall in the firm's net income. James Stewart, who has covered this case pretty closely, he came out with that piece in The New Yorker that I think that you remember. He has uh, since been writing pieces for The New York Times about that include his views on the case. Uh, he called the case against Warren in particular having flimsy evidence and really asked the question why Warren was even charged in the first place in this case. From the people that he talked to in that article, there's a lot of people in the in the New York legal community wondering that, you know, why these prosecutors went after him. What is the what is the prosecution said? The DA's office has come out with a statement on the matter saying that, quote, the deferred prosecution agreement is unrelated to the strength of the case, saying that they're confident that had this case proceeded to trial, we wouldn't we would have met the burden of proof. So what do we know about the terms of his agreement? Under the agreement, he'll be required to perform 350 hours of community service. There are still two defendants who have not accepted agreements. What is the status of the other two defendants in the Dewey fraud trial? So they're still pending. Uh, it's Joel Sanders and Steve DeCarmine. Where we are with Steve Davis and Zachary Warren is this is essentially over, but there's clearly been a long road to get to this point. You've been following this case for years now. Tell me about where do you think they are? Well, the two deferred prosecution agreements are clearly a big step in the way of uh, eliminating two significant defendants from the case. At the same time, even though the defendants entered into these deferred prosecution agreements and it's clearly good news for them, the case has been aired publicly over the past few years and the way that it's been drawn out in the media clearly has had to have taken a toll on them professionally and individually and, you know, the deferred prosecution agreement itself doesn't really capture the extent of, you know, the punishment that these uh, lawyers have gone through. And, I mean, I, I don't even know how much they've spent on legal fees, but I would imagine it would be a lot. And one of the terms of uh, Davis's agreement is that he can't practice law in New York for a number of years. There is sympathy in the legal community, I think, in big law. Certainly when I talk to law firm chairs about the things that were going on at Dewey, since so many think that what they were doing was not that different than what you saw at other firms. I think that that's right. And I think that the reason why the case faltered was because the prosecutors couldn't really clearly illustrate the damage that had been done to to people, to real people from this collapse and how all of these intricate accounting methods were illegal. Last time we spoke, Dickstein Shapiro was in deep talks, quote unquote, deep talks with blank Rome. And now if you visit Dickstein Shapiro's website, you will find a message that says 
that the firm is no longer engaged in the practice of law. More than 100 attorneys and additional staff from their DC and New York offices have joined Blank Rome. Casey, you spoke to Dickstein's former chair. What happened? It was an asset acquisition, which means that Blank Rome came in and acquired a select number of assets from Dickstein Shapiro, namely most of all, if not all of their 100 or so attorneys. They didn't pick up a significant portion of Dickstein's real estate. They moved into Dickstein's Washington, D.C. office, which is where I think that they got the biggest bang out of their buck. But it was not a traditional merger, per se. And these sorts of deals have surfaced recently as firms have faced financial headwinds after the recession and firms have have sought a rescue line after dealing with partner departures. We saw a similar transaction a couple years back when Bingham McCutcheon had been acquired by Morgan Lewis. Initially, when reports surfaced about that deal, there, there had been discussions of a possible uh, merger. That ended up not being the case. It ended up essentially being a huge group of lawyers joining Morgan Lewis from Bingham, but not a merger in the traditional sense. A lot of the reason why that's important is for legal purposes, because the acquiring firm doesn't want to take on the liabilities, which could be anything from lease obligations to lawsuits that might arise over firm partners that hadn't received compensation or or who demand their capital back. Aren't most law firm combinations or tie-ups more acquisition than merger? Absolutely. And when's the last time we saw a pure merger of two law firms as semi or close to equal partners. Well, you do see it with DLA Piper and Dentons and other firms that have traditionally grown by merger. There are Swiss Vereins that basically combine and then market their services under a common brand. So they're not mergers in the sense of two firms really becoming one. I think that the the best merger that people sort of point to as a an example of a merger that has gone well is Wilmer Hale. That happened, I think, in the mid-2000s. So it's been it's been a while since there has been really a transformative merger of equals that has single handedly created this new player in the in the marketplace. The second point on the asset acquisition aspect of this and not taking on the liabilities, there's been some reporting about partners at Dickstein losing their capital. That's right. And that is one part of this deal that's different. Dickstein didn't operate by uh, getting a loan with a big bank. Instead, they required their partners to contribute really significant uh, chunks of capital of their compensation as high as 80% of their comp annually. What's really interesting about that is that firms have traditionally pointed to that structure as a position of strength that you have really good financial hygiene if you don't have any debt. Where here, you see the pitfall of that business model. You see that if a firm does end up winding down or, or dissolving in any form, partners are going to be on the hook for that capital. And what's, what happened in the Dickstein situation is that Dickstein has wound down and its lawyers have joined another firm and they're using the capital to repay creditors who are owed money. So that could be anyone from landlords to recruiters or you know any other number of vendors. How will this play out? What I've heard is that there are some former partners who are considering litigation around their capital. They've been in talks with lawyers who specialize in that field, specialize representing lawyers in compensation disputes and in bankruptcy settings. So the jury's still out on what, what's going to happen with that. This firm is going away. I'm wondering if there's a lesson here for 
for other law firms. Let me put it another way. Was this bad luck? Was it bad management? Why did this happen? There were a, a couple things going on here. For one thing, about five years ago or so, Dickstein had uh, a couple of big patent cases that they initially won. Uh, they represented a, a doctor who was suing uh, Boston Scientific, suing Johnson & Johnson. He had a patent that was around uh, devices that were used to clear up heart arteries. And they ended up winning one of those cases for 400 million. They had accepted it on a contingency basis. They were going to get a big payday out of it. It didn't end up happening. It got reversed on appeal. The other case against Boston Scientific ended up getting settled. And lawyers that we spoke with pointed to a change in the patent litigation landscape in which there have been uh, federal court rulings, uh, the American Invents Act, legislation that has made it more difficult to win patent cases. So those two cases took a huge chunk out of the firm's potential revenue stream. Uh, one partner that we spoke with said more than $100 million in fees, which is, for a firm of Dickstein's size, game-changing. But for that, Dickstein would still be a law firm operating as a law firm today. The partners who we spoke with seem to agree with that point of view. But I think that an added factor based on people that we have spoken with and and I think the numbers that have been reported in the American Lawyer and other trade publications have reflected this, that there's been this huge increase in lateral activity over the past number of years. Because there's been a drop in legal demand, firms are competing much more aggressively for top-tier talent at other, other firms. And firms that have high profits per partner can defend themselves well against that. And But firms like Dickstein Shapiro, who rank more at the lower end of the AMLA 100, maybe higher end of the AMLA 200, they're sort of caught in the middle and they find their most important assets being poached by larger firms where lawyers have bigger opportunities that they can explore. It seems at least a little bit chicken and egg. You know, had that judgment gone their way, so maybe some of these laterals hadn't happened, it wouldn't have happened, right? One did come first. Yeah, and that's usually the case too. I mean, usually there is some fundamental business problem that the firm has to deal with. You know, cases that settle, uh, deals that don't end up getting paid for, that creates this financial pressure that ends up making the partners unhappy and more willing to listen to overtures from others. When you spoke to Jim Kelly, Dickstein's former chair, what was his mood? What did he think? I know he, he talked about the notion that there were a lot of uh, articles written about what was going on at Dickstein. I think that bothered him a lot. Tell me about your conversation with him and how that went. He brought up the point that, and I've heard this point made by a number of different law firm leaders, that the media really plays a significant role in a law firm's unraveling. So when you know reporters such as myself and others at, at different trade publications report on partner departures, we don't always know the context in which these moves are happening. We don't know whether these people are being managed out as part of a transition. And so what he told me was that there was this perception in the market that the firm wasn't doing well that exacerbated the firm's problems. So why does that matter? Why why does the media actually play a role in all of this? Well, the answer to that is how partners react to it. In situations like this, being the chair of a law firm that's going through significant changes, staff changes, uh, financial pressures, it's a really hot seat to be in. You have partners inside the firm that are complaining, that are telling you 
that you're doing everything wrong that you know and, and they're basically building a case against all of the decisions that you're making and so they point to the press but it ultimately doesn't start with the press Dixteen Shapiro was 90th among profits per partner their equity partners averaged over a million dollars they started in the 50s they'd been around obviously a long time they'd been in the Amlot 100 a long time it's hard not to look at this as anything but the end of the firm it doesn't it's not operating anymore as a law firm what was the take that you got at Dickstein and at uh, when speaking with Jim Kelly, the feeling was that this wasn't a failure, that this was a transition, that all of the lawyers who worked at Dickstein were able to continue practicing law and the ones who weren't included in the deal found homes elsewhere. And so they weren't of the view that this was uh, could be likened to a Howery situation, situation or uh, you know any number of other failed firms. It didn't file for bankruptcy, but at the same time, the brand is no more. Also, since we last recorded, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away. Uh, Casey, you spoke to the chair of Sidley Austin, Carter Phillips, who has argued over 70 cases at the court. Did he give you a sense of what, if anything, this changes for his practice or for the Supreme Court practices in big law until there's a ninth justice we could see for four deadlocks. In terms of how it really affects the practices of big law firms that try their cases in this court, Carter said that, you know, we still need to get four votes to get our clients' cases heard and five to win. Did Carter Phillips share any remembrances of Justice Scalia? He did. He said that Scalia's first opinion was on a case that he tried and lost. Also, probably not as widely known is that Scalia spent six years as an associate with Jones Day. Our colleague Gabe Friedman, with reporting from Blake Edwards, had a story about Scalia's time at Jones Day. What did we learn about that? The main takeaway was that Scalia was way too analytical to be an associate. People who worked with him at Jones Day said that he would look at these cases and it was really mundane work of an associate plowing through document review in in, in the antitrust field. And one lawyer, uh, Richard Bernstein, who works now at Wilkie Farr, said just the notion of Justice Scalia arguing over discovery seems so wrong. There was an overall sense that he was better than big law. We released a video yesterday, an op-ed video with Richard Suskind. He has a new book with his son, Daniel, called The Future of the Professions. He joked over Twitter that we asked him to explain the future of big law in less than five minutes. And that's right. And he does a great job. But I'll try to sum it up in even less big law has to change. And if they don't, they will struggle. And that goes for every firm, no matter what. What are your takeaways about what Suskind has said and what he's advising to big law? Well, the one thing that he said that I thought was interesting was that the elite, most prestigious law firms, he doesn't see as being immune to these changes that are happening, to pricing pressure, to figuring out how to manage their firms differently. What he said was that he hears all the time that that elite litigators say, well, this, uh, none of the stuff that you talk about really applies to me because I'm, you know, I'm Ted Wells or, you know, Brad Karp or some high profile litigator that, you know, that it just doesn't apply to. 
it's an interesting perspective that he's taking that the elite of the elite aren't immune because what we've seen from financial rankings and the American lawyers that the rich just keep getting getting richer and it's almost a cliche at this point you know we've been hearing this for years that the AM law 20 is just breaking away and everybody else's is you know there's a falling out middle that is getting crunched by commoditization and and pricing pressure from clients that said you know I, I spoke this week with uh, Greg Nitzkowski the managing partner of Paul Hastings and he's of the view that the elite firms actually do have to pay attention to this that is is a focus around process management and you know bringing in lawyers even non-lawyers to just figure figure out how a case gets broken up even partner with outs, outside vendors to offer to clients basically what's budgeting services so one of the things that's also interesting to me about what he's what he's talking about is he's been right about a lot of stuff in the past. Like he talked about way back when he talked about email and and people were like, oh, email will never catch on with law firms. They'll always, you know... (laughs) Obviously, he was right there. He's talking about AI and he's talking about AI 10 years from now and AI 20 years from now. The notion that it might down the line actually be able to do the work of an associate. It's scary. And it's a topic that's frequently discussed at law conferences. And you don't see lawyers wholeheartedly endorsing the idea of their um, existential problem that they're not going to be here in, in, in five or 10 years. But it's real. I mean, you have IBM Watson that, you know, I don't know how much, how, how much it's catching on, but there already has been a commoditization that has hurt the junior ranks at law firms. Finally, we have a birthday coming up on March 5th. It will be a year since Big Law Business launched. To think that a year ago we were scrambling, you know, working late hours to, you know, line up interviews, line up stories, just to put everything together for the launch. Despite the fact that we're under the Bloomberg umbrella and within Bloomberg BNA and a known name, people didn't know that we were going to be covering Big Law the way that we were. So we still had to convince some people to come be a part of what we were doing, where it was in videos that I was doing or articles that you were doing. And uh, access has become easier um, to leaders at law firms. They've really wanted to participate and be a part of our videos. They've seen what we've done with other law firms um, and with the chairs of other law firms and managing partners. I mean, one thing that I've personally, I don't know if I've learned this, but I've definitely come to appreciate it in its fullest form (laughs) is how clubby law firms can be. And, you know, I remember us gearing up for launch and then shortly after launch, just making sure that we had engagement from leaders at at top law firms, from firms like Weill Gotchel, from Millbank, from other really reputable firms to show people like, you know, be a part of this and to get get people involved and i think that if we hadn't had that level of engagement if we had started at the you know the mid-tier the or you know the consultants and the recruiters that we wouldn't have had that momentum that's all for this episode of Big Law Business. Check out our website, biglawbusiness.com. Give us feedback on the podcast there or write to us. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow us on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow me on Twitter at joshblocknyc. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore biglaw. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's cross-platform businesses. The rest of the good folks who work on Big Law Business include writer-editor Gabe Friedman, correspondent Blake Edwards, technical 
technical and website, Phil Ramsey and Paige Connor. Commercial strategy is Cassie Whiteside. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com. Scott Mazarski oversees the whole big law business operation. You know, I love that like Mad Lib thing that Ira Glass does at the end of every episode of This American Life, you know, like something like this. When Scott Mazarski first hired me for this job, he told me, you are not uh, pleading guilty to a crime and you, you do not become a convicted criminal uh, following that kind of agreement. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back in about two weeks with another episode of Big Law Business. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so that you don't miss it.